Welcome back for another episode of Radical Ones. Phineas, my trusted producer in the studio with me. Phineas, who are we chatting with today? Today we have Jacqueline Novogratz, an entrepreneur, author, impact investor. She started Acumen Fund, which is a global nonprofit focused on impact investing. And I, I think is maybe one of the first notable impact investment funds and really was one of the pioneers of this type of activism. Totally. I think that's a fair way to describe her. I'm just so excited to be chatting with Jack. Like really, honestly, there's not that many people. I feel like I spent a lot of my time thinking about how to like restructure the world entirely to catalyze as much freedom and dignity, empowerment, joy as possible. And Jacqueline's one of the few people I, I get to chat with every once in a while that has been thinking about that as intensely as I think about it or more intensely for much longer and has been successful at a pretty incredible scale. I mean, Acumen, so Acumen invests in businesses that can scale, so brings what they call patient capital, meaning it's for-profit investment, but it doesn't have to turn around today, tomorrow, the next day, the next year, et cetera. We're, you know, long-term investments in these organizations. And these, these are organizations that have some sort of social benefit. But yeah, so this conversation, though, particularly, she just wrote this book, uh, A Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. It feels like kind of this, she's taking this next step in like synthesizing what she's learned where this type of model can work, how far it can take us, and what else needs to happen to really eliminate that type of desperation or suffering and, and open the window to a new future. And so she's taking this school of thought that helped her develop something like Acumen and seems to be in many different ways to bring it to the other nodes of power. And so our private corporations, our political leadership can all be guided by this ideology that says, you know, winners take all is not the way. Globally, humanity is having this conversation, but she seems like uniquely equipped to both guide it and then also deliver it to other people in power so they can integrate these principles quickly, which, you know, we desperately need. I want to focus this conversation on the moral revolution. You wrote a book called Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. We're talking, you know, behind the scenes on what else we can do to catalyze a moral revolution. So before we get into like what that means, I just I'd love your thoughts on like describing the problem you're trying to solve. Well, it's interesting, Xander. The problem I started trying to solve um, 35 years ago was poverty, and over. These years, what I discovered is that the opposite of poverty is not income. The opposite of poverty is dignity. It's, it's this desire and this need to have agency, have control, have the ability to make decisions about our own lives. And when you move from that place, you start to realize just uh, how many people are left out from the real opportunity to make those decisions. And um, so that's number one. Number two in terms of the moral revolution, when I graduated from business school 30 years ago, we were taught that we were at the beginning of a revolution of capitalism and technology. Mm. And indeed, by opening up the markets, we saw over a billion people taken out of poverty, technology connected everybody across the world, and now here we are. With unbelievable levels of innovation and prosperity, but for the few. 
We are more unequal, more divided, more divisive than ever in our lifetime. And we're facing cataclysmic climate change. And so if we had those revolutions in my generation, what's needed now is a moral revolution that moves away from these systems that put the individual and profit at the center of everything and instead insist on putting our, our shared human dignity as well as the sustainability of the earth there. You talked a little bit about what technology has done both for, for better and worse. Would you say the dearth of morality started with the technological revolution, was expanded with the technological revolution, this lack of having you know, individuals and the well-being of all individuals centered on it. I mean, you know, industrialization also had aspects of that. Is there something more troubling about what you saw the last 30 years? Or is this just a continuation that you want to disrupt? There have always been moral quandaries. I was just reading, rereading Plato's Republic with a group of young people. And Plato and Aristotle described the Republic as this good society. And indeed, there was a lot of good in it. And it was held up by slaves. Um, mm -hmm. that don't fully make it into the center of the document, right? And so I look now at a world, again, where so many people have been lifted out of poverty. When I went to Rwanda in 1986, Xander, 40% of the world lived in extreme poverty. 40%. And today that number is about 9%. And so there has been real change. Technology, I loved what you said. It's a tool. That's all it is. And so is capital. But Somehow, over the last 30 years, we've raised both to the rank of religion. And they've become the end in and of themselves, rather than things for us to control. And so we've become addicted, obsessed, and way too focused on, particularly money, as one of our main definitions of success, and have lost the, the plot in terms of a definition that's required for our interdependent world, which is much more around the amount of human energy that we release, the amount of beauty we create, mm. the amount of contribution we give. And so some of this journey that you're on now was seeing, you went on this quest and it was a successful quest. Like you've done so much with Acumen and, and all of your work. And Acumen was a piece of this, this reduction in people that live in extreme poverty, you know, that, that 40% to 9% is part of this, I don't want to call it a new quest, but this like more morality centered quest from your kind of observation that like maybe that measurement is not quite right that that we're that 40 percent to that nine percent i don't think 31 percent in this world are doing much better because there's these other measurements that that we're not including well no and as human beings we compare ourselves to each other right and so again we, it's it's how we define poverty if we only define poverty on an income level yeah we're doing well but if you look at Black American males in the United States, for instance, it's a myth to say, well, they're doing so much better than people in other countries around the world. Right. Which you hear all the time. You hear it all the time that there are, you know, p p poor people in the United States have air conditioners and cell phones and televisions and cars. True. And if you look at the dignity component, if you look at maternal mortality, if you look at quality of life and frankly, lifespan. Um, the United States not only does relatively worse than the rest of the world, certainly we're one of the worst in the developed world, but even on absolute levels, we're worse than many of the developing countries. I think that African-American men 
in the United States have a lower lifespan than Bangladeshi men. That's what it means to think about poverty in a much broader sense of whether you actually have the human agency and the human capability to participate in real ways. So, I mean, that's a perfect segue. You wrote this book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. You don't strike me as someone who does anything without, like, outcomes that you want from it, right? I imagine you weren't just like, yeah, that'd be a nice hobby to write that book. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why, honestly, you've been so effective in, in you know, with Acumen, et cetera, is, is you bring that. I mean, talk about, like, the marriage of two different worlds. Like, you, you bring some of the, like, hyper-effectiveness strategy, you know, vision that maybe people are more accustomed or like have pattern recognition over in like from like Silicon Valley entrepreneurs or whatnot. And you brought that over to Acumen. And I think you're bringing that over to this as well. I'd love to hear like, what's your proposal for the world and, and what's your hope from this book and what comes out of this book? Well, it's nothing less than, you know, the, the fact that we have to reimagine every one of our institutions. We know that, that they've run their course. They're no long, longer working, not for an interdependent world. Yep. And we could talk about anything from healthcare to uh, the system of capitalism to the system of democracy and our political system. And yep. so how do, can this book and the work that, that we do at Acumen help empower a new generation to reimagine and then start building those institutions? And also, the book has a lot of honesty about just how hard it is to take on the status quo and build it. And so, you know, thanks for what you said, Sander, but it... I, it, it comes from many pounds of flesh being taken off the back because <laughs> you know, the work is so hard. And it was just last week where a woman, um, I was in a very ugly situation, and a woman said, you're so tough. And I said, well, what do you think? Like, look at what we're trying to navigate. And, right. um, and she said, but you talk about love all the time. And I said, but this is love. Mm. Love is, it's a hard skill. Love is not a soft skill. And if you think about the times that you've loved the hardest, it is in those times when you're dealing with great grief or someone else's great anger. You don't want to show up. You show up anyway. You do the work. And so my tools mm. are the tools of finance and entrepreneurship and partnership. Those are in and of themselves not easy, even when everything's working. But when you're trying to build companies for people who make 2 $3 a day, in communities where there's no infrastructure, no trust, uh, right. no financing, but a ton of corruption and bureaucracy, then you start to see why we have to hold that hard and the soft, the profit and the purpose. And that's the moral revolution piece. It is keeping both at the center rather than sailing on the false conceit that if we just navigate to the single bottom line, Everybody is going to be fine. How do you deal with the? I, I feel like one of the things we run into is that that pure profit motive and pure profit compounds in a way that the other thing we need to sprinkle in doesn't. Right? You become more powerful and more powerful the more that compounds. And then the world tells you you're smarter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You elevate more and you elevate more. I don't know. How do you think about that? Like, is there a first pillar to attack? Is it attacking the regulations around, you know, capitalism? Is it, is it attacking a more pure democracy or what you trying to do? Just getting more people thinking through this lens in all these different verticals. I think by getting people to think through these different lenses and all these different verticals, then you have a chance of changing policy, regulations, the business schools, the elementary schools, uh, corporates, and, and, What's been 
really exciting over the last 20 years is that we've built partnerships across all of these. So I'm on the, I'm on the advisories of a number of business schools. These are conversations we're having. You know, why are we just lifting the Stanford Business School students that have made a ton of money when Sam and Sam Goldman and Ned Tozum have brought 100 million people electricity who never had it before? How do we change that definition? To your point, Xander, I'm advising a couple of for-profit funds right now where they are actually making a long-term bet by assuming that if you integrate the environmental externalities into your calculus of how successful a company is, and you integrate the, the negative and positive externalities of whether or not you provide good jobs for disadvantaged communities, you will long-term do better for the shareholders. So it's still a private sector intervention. Then I've been talking to a number of senators uh, around what are some of the bills? How would you uh, reinforce what it actually takes to bring capital and what I would call accompaniment into disadvantaged communities to allow black and brown entrepreneurs a chance even to get access to capital? The moral framework, again, that could help all of that change is if that we, number one, redefine success. Number two, built and defined our success not by just how the rich are doing, by how the, the poor and the vulnerable fare, and that we celebrate those communities and those nations that are doing the best job there. And when you flip those models, and we have lots of them now across our portfolio, you can see a road to change capitalism. You can see a road to build healthier societies in which everybody gets dignity. What, what are you finding most effective? These are people that have won because of the current set of rules often, right? Whether it's the students, the, the, the leaders in these private companies from these politicians, they've, they've won the current set of rules and you can only expect them maybe to be so radical or maybe not. I wonder what's landing the most in these conversations. Sandra, I think it's why I came back to the idea of moral revolution, that it, it, it comes down to individuals deciding that they will do the uncomfortable, that they will go first and not conform to the accepted and expected status quo. And that's really hard. And so we got to build out that community. And they include people from every sector. Alan Jopit, who's been CEO just for a couple of years now at Unilever, just made an announcement that I think it's by 2026, which is wild, that they want to have a living wage paid throughout their supply chain. Um, we work with smallholder farmer groups that are part of Unilever supply chain. And that's a, you talk about a big, hairy, audacious goal. Totally. So you've got people within the corporate sector, you've got people in, in obviously civil society, you've got all of these social entrepreneurs and they're coming and growing. And then there is a revolution that you're starting to see in consumers and in particularly young employees who are not going to keep working at those companies that pay lip service to purpose and sustainability and don't follow through. Um, we need all of them because there's got to be an urgency right now for how quickly this world change changes or we're going to get where we're going and it ain't pretty. It's funny, like what, what you're saying is resonating with me so deeply in that, that need to 
push people to go first and have that become part of their personal story and identify as, as that that's who they are. That's their legacy. And a lot of that is like such a, such a soft skill that I've been navigating in like one for democracy. And then what I, what I hope becomes one for a bunch of other things is getting, getting people to identify beyond, you know, what they're currently doing with being, being a leader in, in, a, in a space. Um, Sandra, one thing I think, sorry, but one thing I think so many people don't understand and, and you do. And so it'd be interesting to hear from you on this is that when you make a commitment to something that's a lot bigger than yourself, in a funny way, it sets you free. 100%. It's still lonely because you have to do things that don't make you look as smart. You might come off as idealistic. You know, when I was like, why couldn't we take philanthropy and, and invest in? Why do we have to make huge returns? Why can't we focus our success based on the impact we have in the world? People are like, you clearly don't understand business. Um, you're clearly... You don't get it. You don't get it. And it hurts. Yeah. But you you keep moving. And that's one of the things I hope to do because it's at times a super lonely journey. 100%. So let's let's talk about that journey you're on right now. All right. So, so you write the book, you're going into these halls of power. I'm like interested, actually, what is one of your favorite exchanges recently that led to like an outcome that you were so excited about? One of the most extraordinary moments to, to your question for me came about probably seven, eight years ago. I had written Blue Sweater and one of our fellows in Nairobi gave my book to a young guy living in the slums named Kevin and said, look, read the book, but do me a favor and write my boss a, a review. And so, Xander, I get this long text uh, out of the blue, and it's like, you know, I really appreciate your book. And the punchline is, if you can fail as many times as you have failed and still succeed, it gives me hope. Because I am third grade educated, HIV positive, and I don't have a job. But like you, I too want to contribute to bridging the gap between rich and poor. Mm. And I just stared at this and thought, wait a minute, I wrote this whole book thinking that the protagonists were the HIV sur- survivors of genocide in Rwanda, who I'd known for so long. I, mm-hmm. I, I didn't think it was me. And yet Kevin really related to me and all of my failures, and I've had many. And so I said, look, Kevin, I'll, do it. I'll make a deal with you. If you have other friends who want to read the book, let me know. But when I come to Nairobi, we need to have a book club. And he said, send me 100 it's like okay (laughs) I sent him 100 books and um, like two months later Xandra I go to Nairobi to Kibera and a woman named Mama Hamza has this little community center with a tin roof and tin walls and watching 100 people walk in with these dog-eared paperbacks under their arms was like so overwhelming but then later in the conversation there was this one moment where People were so gracious and, and, and people kept saying, you know, I'm just like you, but I can't afford the bribes to get my child into school. So my kid had to sell eggs on the street after third grade. And I'm just like you, but. And finally, I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. It's like, I, I have loved working here and knowing people here, but you are not just like me. I live in one of the wealthiest communities in the world. I went to one of the best universities. My skin is white. I have an American passport. Right. There's nothing I can't do. And they're like, we know that. But here you are with us, sharing the problems with us. And I, I will tell you, that moment of human connection 
situated mm. me on on sacred ground. It would rival any church, any synagogue, any any <laughs> any mosque you ever want to bring me to. That to me is why we do the work. That to me is um, it's those kind of experiences that uh, are most important. Hundred percent. I want so. I wonder what's on the immediate horizon for you. What looks like victory two years from now? We're toasting and being like, "All right, like this thing's moving. <laughs> the revolution's on its way because X, Y, and Z have happened." I wonder how, how you're thinking about that. So, short-term tactics. Um, yes, there's a book. We built something called Acumen Academy, which is the world's school for social change, which is an online platform that has at the center of it the Path of Moral Leadership, which is a master course for the book. Um, and we've had about a million signups. So. People from 190 countries are taking courses on what it actually takes to make change. And I do believe that those individuals become the foot soldiers. The second thing is to really accelerate the work that we're doing, Xander and patient capital investing around the world. And um, too long to go into all of that, but it's the, the teams are getting more creative, more unapologetic, working with indigenous communities and, and not just using investment models, but thinking about what it really means to control capital rather than have it control us. Mm. The bigger piece, you know, in the next decade, in the next 15 years, what will this look like? It will be that we will see more and more institutions that are valuing our humanity, that are valuing the earth, and that are building systems around that end rather than simply focusing on profit. And... I truly believe we're on our way, but it won't happen without a fight. It won't happen without the, the deliberate, gritty, determined actions of, of all of us in one way or another. I imagine some of, as more folks take this on, you know, take this challenge on, defining like what success is, is different for individuals, for different for corporations, et cetera, right? You know, in my generation, we divided the world between the do-gooders and the money-makers, and what I think is so exciting about this moment in history, and I just want to pick up on what you said, that the problems that we have to solve are so complex and they are so enmeshed, um, and yet they are so eminently solvable that it will really take the smartest, the toughest, the most loving and compassionate, um, the most artistic. It will take the best of, of what we all have to bring to each other, not in a in a soft and complacent way, but in a serious, gritty, visionary way. And there's just no more interesting work to work on. And while, yes, the, the purpose statements of these different institutions may be different, if there were one mantra that I actually believe every individual, every family, every community, every nation, every company can make, it is a focus on giving back to the world more than you take from it. We think about that at Acumen. When we make an investment, how does it change us if we focus on investing more than we extract? Obviously, we still want to get returns. But what are we leaving in exchange for those returns? And everyone talks about colonial models and this model and that model. If we simplify it to... The way that we work is not just to make myself rich, not to make myself beautiful, not to make myself right. more powerful or famous, but every day, 
to ask ourselves, what am I doing to help someone else get a little bit more confident, a little bit more productive, a little bit wealthier, a little bit more dignity at the end of the day, dignity. That was beautiful. So, but the last thing I typically do is give the guests the floor, but that was so gorgeous. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like you crushed it. I take it. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was amazing. Um, well, if you would like any final notes, though, you can say whatever you like. This is free form, you know, whatever you want to do. Uh, close it out for us. I'll close it out there just with really quickly, Xander. Um, and that is one. You know, you are just awesome and you are just such a representative. When I think of the moral revolution, it looks like you. The amount of energy, the amount of of spirit, the amount of vision, the fearlessness that you bring to the world. I don't even know if you understand how much you inspire and you teach me. Um, And it's really where I think there's an opportunity right now intergenerationally for kind of the older wisdom and the younger intelligence and understanding of the world as it is uh, can work together. And then the final thing I'll say just on the moral revolution piece is that, you know, I talk about dignity a lot because uh, I think it's, it's what we fundamentally yearn for as human beings, to be seen, to be known, to be loved, to be able to participate and to contribute. And when I started this work, I thought that I understood what it meant that we don't get dignity as a human species unless all of us get dignity. 35 years later, What that means is that in a world where some people are demeaned, excluded, pushed out, uh, blamed, we all lose. We all get smaller. And so at the end of the day, it's, it's turning that inside out and realizing that our dignity really does depend on each other's and that in that way, we are each other's destiny. Thank you for listening to Radical Ones. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Radical Ones. You can also follow us on social at Radical Ones Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. Take care.